MSW Media. This week, Professor Christine Blasey Ford came forward and told the Washington Post that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh attempted to violently rape her when she was 15 years old and he was 17 years old. She will testify this week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The fate of Kavanaugh's nomination and the balance of power on the Supreme Court hangs in the balance. How she is treated will also send a message to women across this country, which could have profound implications. What are the implications of Professor Ford's accusation and how she has been treated by Senate Republicans? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst, and I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Renato, I don't think there's been any other issue that I've had so many in-depth conversations about than this topic. Well, it's a topic that not only has legal and political implications that are obviously extraordinarily important, but it really, I think, touches on personal experiences that so many women have had. You know, whenever I've discussed this topic with women, it always, um, I think, you know, gets connected to personal experiences that people have had. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. And for people who haven't really followed this from the moment this the, the story broke, can you tell us, because I don't understand why this didn't come out during the hearings, why this information would seem to have been held back. Well, Professor Ford wrote a letter to um, Diane Feinstein, or that became into the possession of Diane Feinstein. My understanding is she originally reported it to Anna Eshoo, who's her congressperson, who's uh, who represents her in the House. Ultimately, that was brought to the attention of Diane Feinstein, the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, and also uh, Professor Ford's senator uh, in California. But she, but uh, Professor Ford asked her to keep that private uh, and not to release her name. And so Senator Feinstein was in a situation where, you you know, she felt uncomfortable revealing this or or making anything, uh, bringing this to light because she had to respect, I, I think correctly, Professor Ford's wishes. But at some point it got leaked. And after that point, uh, then uh, uh, Professor Blasey Ford uh, came forward to the Washington Post. Which you have to imagine was uh, a really hard decision to arrive at, don't you think? Well, for sure. I think her life now is going to be in many ways defined by her coming forward and making this accusation against Brett Kavanaugh. It's quite an amazing thing that, you know, here's a woman who was certainly a prominent professor, but was relatively anonymous, not a national public figure. And now the discussion nationwide on television, radio, the internet, social media is all um, about her. And that's, that's got to be a very difficult thing. Well, and, and I guess people are attacking her character as you would expect, as many women expect, 
uh, and when it comes to making these kinds of accusations, it's, which is one of the reasons why we often don't. Uh, we're, you know, there's a shame involved in it. There's, uh, and then there comes a point where why did you wait so long? Becomes a, a point of attack. It's really unfortunate. You know, this could be a moment where if, if Professor Ford was treated with respect, if she was heard, it could encourage sexual assault victims to come forward. Instead, what we're seeing is, I think, the worst fears of a lot of victims being realized, which is she's the one under attack. As you point out, her credibility is being questioned. And frankly, by none other than the president of the United States. That was what was so crazy was at first it seemed as though he had been very reserved in his reaction. It seemed as though he he was saying, let's um, let's make sure that she's heard. You know, he would make some comments about, well, I find it hard to believe. But then that day was it? I think it was Friday where he just came full bore. And I mean that as soon as he said, I find it hard to believe that she wouldn't have uh, made a report or what's the tweet? Tell me what I I, I went. I honestly, everything got fuzzy after I read that. No, I can understand why. Um, And I'll read it right now. Trump said, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. I ask that she bring these filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place. And, of course, the obvious implication you know is— I don't even remember the rest of that. All I remember <laughs> reading was, uh, you know, I have no doubt and something about reports. And I just—honestly, it was so crazy-making. Well, it was. I mean, this is essentially the sort of blame the victim and suggest that if a victim doesn't come forward immediately that her experience is not valid or that her testimony is false. And most sexual assault victims do not come forward right away for a variety of reasons. And he's one of the reasons why. This is exactly why, because of, of misguided and false statements like this one. And, that, and also... also that her parents possibly didn't love her as though, well, first of all, whether or not she told them. And if she did, they didn't love her enough to make mm-hmm. a report. It's all, there's so much wrapped up in that, too. Well, sure. The, and it's important to remember, by the way, Professor Blasey Ford was a child at the time. So you're talking about a 15 year old potential, you know, potentially very scared who, you know, a lot you it's the sort of thing you can feel embarrassed. You don't want to necessarily tell anyone, including your parents. So right, that, that you were at a party. Maybe there was drinking. What were you doing there? Like all of that starts to unpack itself for you. Yeah, I will tell you, you know, I I have dealt with when I was a federal prosecutor, uh, victims of crimes who were traumatized by the experience, people who had trouble even participating in private questioning with me and FBI agents who would run to the bathroom and crying. You know, we had victim oh. witness specialists who would help us um, handle and, and and I say handle is probably not the right word, but I, I guess, you know, um, comfort and support victims who we had to go through the process of being a witness. You know, here, what I find astonishing by all about all this, or I should say astonishing because unfortunately it's not surprising, but I'd say disappointing, is the way in which Professor Ford is being treated. I mean, to me, when somebody is coming forward, you know, stating that they've been a victim of a violent crime and is willing to come forward and be a witness, I think common respect and courtesy and a desire for the truth should be that you treat the person with some level of dignity. Mm -hmm. And that means supporting her. Um, What we've seen instead is there's this 
rush to try to, you know, she's initially it was like, well, I'll, if you're not going to come on Monday, that's it. Uh, right. I mean, it was crazy. It, right. It, it, exactly. They are forcing this timeline when there isn't really a hurry to fill the seat, is there? I mean, Scalia's seat was <laughs> empty for quite a while. Even if, I mean, the way I would look at it is that certainly I can understand why Republicans want to punch this one in before the midterms. Why is that? Oh, I see. <laughs> are they a little bit vulnerable this they, year? They may yeah. be, but even if that's the case, there's four, there's 45 days until the midterm elections, you could give the woman another day or two or three or four. There's no reason why it needed to be this, you know, Monday only. And now obviously it's going to be Thursday. Um, they kept giving her these artificial deadlines. You have to respond by 10 p.m. or 2, 2 a.m. or whatever it was. Uh, you know, I just, to me, that's just not a respectful way to deal with any witness. You know, I, I think you know, when, when they've had executives come in to testify about fairly ordinary matters or order, certainly matters that are less urgent, um, you know, they've never been this disrespectful towards them. It was a bizarre lack of respect for somebody who, by her own account, is traumatized in dealing with um, very difficult accusations. What's disturbing, too, is that today Lindsey Graham came out and said that no matter what her testimony is, he, he's not going to change his mind. Well, sure. Unless there's something, I guess he said, you know, shockingly new. But, you know, right there, it tells you what direction they're headed in. Well, sure. And and uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate Majority Leader, promised that uh, Judge Kavanaugh would be on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. basically prejudging the whole process. I, I don't think that anyone looking at this from the outside can see this as a real search for the truth. I mean, here they didn't even, they're not subpoena any of the other witnesses. You know, in other words, you know, if, if you were doing this in a, in a way to try to reach the truth, this guy, Mark Judge, who she claims is a, was a kind of a co-perpetrator, mm. should at least be put under oath and questioned. And if there are people at the party who say, I mean, we're hearing press reports, whether some of them say they remember this or that or, or, or not, they should be brought and put under oath as well. And here's the problem is that people are saying, you know, well, you know, that's, it's not okay that she's waited this long. It shouldn't have any uh, bearing on this, especially because it was in high school. And here's where I stand. He's not entitled to this seat. We, the American people, are entitled to hold him to a higher moral standard. If we're going to take a gamble on what he's going to do when he's 80, we can talk about what he did when he was 18. Well, sure. There, there are there are literally thousands and thousands of lawyers who could fill that seat, and to, if the Republicans want somebody who's going to, you know, be somebody on the right who's going to achieve certain certain results, there are many other judges on their list who they could pick, probably who they could rush through before the midterms. And frankly, the way the, the odds look, they're going to they're going to hold the Senate anyway. So why why the rush uh, to to rush this guy through? I don't know. I mean, I we saw earlier uh, it was earlier today. Uh, you mentioned Lindsey Graham. He said, "Well, I don't want to ruin this guy's life." Right. And and <laughs> like, I know, right? So as if a lot it's, of screaming in my head. That's well, as in, yeah. <laughs> well, as if it ruins someone's life to be a federal judge on an honored court with a lifetime appointment. You know, Brett Kavanaugh, by any accounts, has had, lived a very charmed life, from going to a very fancy. Uh, prep school to very fancy college and law school and so on. Um, you know, this woman's life, um, by her account and by what we've read in press reports, seems to have been very deeply affected uh, in a serious way. Correct. You know, Renata, one of the things I was wondering as we learned more about uh, Professor Blasey Ford's allegations 
you know, would there be other women coming forward? And one of the stories that came out were about the young women who uh, talked about being groomed to be his clerks. Because, uh, you know, it's this thing where you, you do see somebody in a high position and as though their office is always filled with attractive young people, in particular young women. What have you heard as far as what's coming out of uh, the Yale campus? So... There is a story that came out about Yale law students, uh, women who said that they were told that it wasn't a mistake that his clerks looked like models and that they had a dress in a sort of attractive and outgoing manner. I mean, I presume provocative of some kind is what I think was the implication there. That was the allegations were leveled against a woman named Amy Chua, who is a, a professor of law at Yale Law School. She's also known for writing these books about being a tiger mom. She has since denied the allegations. She's ill, but she she came forward and denied the allegations. And right on the heels of that, Yale Law students have come forward and said she's a liar, that she did say those things. So I imagine, I, my understanding is from Yale Law School, they're going to be investigating that. You know, what I will say is, from my own experience, I was a, a clerk on a federal court of appeals for a, another judge. Um and um, it is something that is a very honored and prestigious thing, particularly clerking for someone like Brett Kavanaugh. He is seen as a top-tier judge to clerk for. He's on the most prestigious court uh, to clerk for other than the Supreme Court, and he is somebody who often sends his clerks to, to go on and clerk on the Supreme Court. So he has the sort of job there in terms of being a law clerk that, that law students are angling to work with him for a year. It's a very prestigious thing. Um, so, you know, those allegations, if they uh, ultimately are proven, I think are serious and disturbing. You know, it is, you know, there there was related to that, there was news in some of the same articles about Jed Rubenfeld, who was one of my professors in law school and is the husband of Amy Chua, is also under investigation himself for sexual misconduct. And it'll and we'll have to wait and see what the results of that independent investigation are. Man, it just seems as though they're in a position to help people, and they've done the opposite. Well, if if the allegations are yeah. true, that it, it it, they should they should be removed. Let's bring in Judy Lichtman. Judy is a senior advisor and former executive director for the National Partnership for Women and Families. She's also one of the founders of Emily's List, and is largely credited with the passage of the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993. Welcome to the show, Judy. Before we begin, I've got to ask you, what role, if any, did you have in the hearings regarding Clarence Thomas back in 1991? So that's a good question. So um, I and two other brilliant women, not that I was brilliant, they were. (laughs) Um, I didn't say that correctly. Um, Testified against uh, in opposition to Clarence Thomas's nomination, um, I can't place it in the Gregorian calendar, and I think you'll both be amused. Uh, it was immediately before Kol Nidre, so it was just before Yom Kippur started, and we were the last panel, and we were itching to get out. Um, and... We testified in opposition on the merits. We thought that he lacked a demonstrated commitment to equal justice, and we documented in very many ways in which we thought uh, that 
he his views were anathema to strong civil rights law enforcement across the board, and most especially against uh, women's legal and constitutional rights. We had never heard of Anita Hill when we testified. The next day, being a Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, ended with a, ended a fast day with a breakfast at my house and lots of people, and everybody went home, and I put my feet up because my ankles were swollen <laughs> standing um, and a friend and colleague, Susan Ross, who's a law professor and was then a law professor at Georgetown Law School, called to tell me Anita Hill's story. She told me her name. So I heard Anita Hill's name for the first time the day after I testified in opposition on behalf of the um, National Partnerships for Women and Families was then called the Women's Legal Defense Fund. We changed our name in 98. So the first time I heard her name was the next night. And um, I I then uh, played really a behind-the-scenes role, um, hoping that I could help forge a fair hearing for Anita Hill by talking to senators, by talking to Senate staff people, and working closely with some members of her team. Um, At that time, immediately after I heard her name, what Anita Hill wanted at that moment was a closed hearing. She didn't want to be public. You know, the parallels are so stark. I, I just watched a little bit of Reliable Source and um, watched Jill Abramson talk about the parallels between then and now. Um, and um, and that wasn't to be. Um, the the she was, as you know, uh, her memo and her FBI affidavit will lead to Nina Tobenberg, and in that regard, she was outed, and the rest is history. So I continued to play a behind-the-scenes role, um, trying uh, my best and uh, not being very successful in uh, getting her the most fair hearing for her extraordinarily serious allegations. I recall there being uh, other women, or at least one other woman, that was going to kind of corroborate what her testimony was. Were you familiar with that? I I am to some extent. Um, the there were some witnesses, unlike today, and the irony of the Senate Republicans who are in control of the Senate Judiciary Committee today are affording Dr. Blasey Ford. Ble- um, less fair hearing than even Anita Hill's hearing that was not fair. So there were a few witnesses, but not the corroborating witnesses that she asked for. And I know that there were affidavits from some women corroborating her stories, and those women were not heard from. 
And in, in the parallels that you're talking about, they're not allowing her to bring other witnesses, and they know that there are other people that she has named and, and possibly other people that can be familiar with that night in particular. And uh, that's absolutely right. And as well, uh, she has asked for an FBI investigation where she's willing to come forward under oath understanding full well that lying to the FBI is a federal crime um, and for these witnesses to be in, be uh, investigated by the FBI um, and the Republicans are refusing even that and Nita Hill was at least afforded um, an FBI investigation. Yeah. So here we are 27 years later, and this rump hearing, this phony baloney hearing, I shouldn't say phony baloney because that makes it sound like cute. There's nothing cute about this. This phony rump hearing um, is even worse in terms of being fair to uh, Dr. Blasey Ford than it was to uh, Anita Hill. Well, I've got to say, uh, I, what I wonder is the message that this sends to women across the country, because there are already women who've been afraid to come forward about their own experiences with sexual assault. We would like to think that we've made progress in this area, particularly after the emergence of the Me Too movement. But do you feel that this is sending a message, the wrong message, to those women? Well, I think your question's a very interesting one. I think that's probably the message that's intended by the messengers, but it's not the message that's been received by women, not now and not in 91. So in 91, you will remember that the Anita Hill's hearing sparked a national conversation about sexual harassment and sexual abuse and uh, not only resulted in the passage of some very strong civil rights legislation, but in the political realm in the year of the woman. And many of the women who were elected in 92, decided to run as a direct result of seeing what happened. And they said that, including, I saw Patty Murray say it this morning on Meet the Press. Um, and certainly it was true for Diane Feinstein, who sits on the Judiciary Committee. So I think that may be what the Republicans, Republican male controlled Senate Judiciary Committee and Senate w might wish for, but I don't believe that that is going to be the result. Just last week, um, just scores of women went up to Capitol Hill to tell stories that they had never told anyone before in support of Dr. Blasey Ford's courage they wanted for the first time to be heard. And I have every reason to believe that that is going to continue into today and tomorrow and into this week 
with women not being cowed, not being scared, not being frightened, but being as courageous as Dr. Blasey Ford, and in honor of her courage coming out themselves, either for the first time or in support. It's really quite remarkable. And how that uh, evolves into political action uh, remains to be seen, both in the midterms and the next presidential. But if past is prologue in this context, I don't think uh, from Me Too uh, to uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, women are frightened. I think quite the opposite. I, are you familiar with the uh, the hashtag uh, why I didn't report and the yes. outpouring? Yes. And, and I think many yes. women, many women like me, not only want to be there for women who perhaps aren't ready to step forward, but we're hoping that we also energize uh, Professor Blasey Ford, and, and she knows that she has our support. I think that's one of the intentions. I think that's right, and to say that. Men, really, in a very clear way, never again. No. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. This isn't going to work to a path of great uh, public leadership. Mm -mm. Can't get away with it anymore. One thing that has surprised me is seeing some Republicans say that even if uh, Judge Kavanaugh had tried to rape Professor Blasey Ford, that that would not disqualify him, either because of his age or because they did not view that as a completed crime or something like uh, something along those lines. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so many people saying, well, he tried. He didn't actually do it. That's not a crime. That's, that's really <laughs> well, what they're attempted saying. Attempted rape is a crime. Yeah. It is. As a former prosecutor, I'll tell you, there are right. a lot of pres- people in prison. <laughs> I put people in prison for, right, put people in prison for attempting to rob banks and attempting to, there's a lot of people who attempted to buy drugs from undercover officers and so and on. I just learned that, that there is no st- statute of uh, limitations for attempted rape in Montgomery County, Maryland. There is not, and the Montgomery County Police Department has said that if they can establish that this occurred in, yeah. Mo- in Mo- or you know her, yeah. that that her allegations yeah. were for in Montgomery County, that they would be willing to investigate. So you know, one thing that I think is interesting, we could see happen is, if the Republicans are determined to push through. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, which it appears to me that they are interested in doing no matter what, um, then we might see um, Professor Ford file charges. And um, uh, Jerry Nadler, the ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, has said they would continue the investigation if they took over Congress. So you could potentially see impeachment proceedings. And I heard Senator um, Whitehouse say the same thing about the Senate. That that is remarkable, yeah. and it could really you know harm an institution in the Supreme Court that has, uh, as our institutions go, I think all of them have been harmed by Donald Trump, and over the last couple of years. But this is an institution that had not yet been been stained in these last two years in quite the same way, and now I think we're going to see if that happens, we could potentially see a very significant shadow uh, over the Supreme Court. I couldn't agree more. Judy, it must be uh, sort of um, from your perspective, because you have a longer view as to the evolution of, you know, women's place, whether it's in government or policy. uh, You know, how do you armor yourself in this sort of atmosphere and to continue to do the work? Oh, well, I think um, sometimes they're easier than other times. Mm -hmm. I won't lie. 
But I also think, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the fact, yes, of course, it's true that um, Clarence Thomas is a justice on the Supreme Court. That's a fact. It is also a fact that um, Anita Hill is the most credible, iconic figure on a, on a whole host of these important issues and debates. She, she has a good life, a good professional life and a good personal life. But he didn't damage this extraordinary woman. And I also think the fact that we were able to pass strong civil rights legislation, which, amongst other things, uh, allowed for much stronger remedies against sexual harassment in the workplace and in education institutions, and the very year of the woman. And if you look at um, today in the numbers of women who are running and have a real good chance, not only for Congress and the Senate, but also in state legislatures and for governorships. Wow, it just says to me, you just don't, you don't put that genie back in some bottle. Many of them animated by the very election of um, Donald Trump and the misogynistic, sexist treatment of Hillary Clinton in the 26 uh, elections. So while I can't wrap everything up in a with a beautiful ribbon, I I feel strongly that out of t- just terrible circumstances, we're often to see real, really important uh, progress as a society for women. So w- one thing I think maybe is lost in this conversation is the fact, and I want to mean this conversation, I mean the national conversation about these mm-hmm. allegations, mm-hmm. is that uh, Professor Blasey Ford, when, when this incident um, allegedly occurred, was back in the 1980s. It was a different time for women, and it was a different time um, in terms of how um, culture was amongst students. And, you know, I remember when I went to Yale Law School, uh, where Brett Kavanaugh went, I remember looking at the photos at the Yale Law Journal and seeing the classes from 20, 30, 40 years ago and how few women uh, were even mm-hmm. in law school at that time. I'm wondering what your experience was as a young lawyer years ago and what you can shine light on in terms of the difference between how these allegations would have been viewed in the 80s versus today. Well, I have a... Typical law school story to tell. I wish it was an atypical story. It's a much older story uh, because of my own age, but it could not be more apt for today. I um, went to law school uh, from 62 to 65. There were only two women. I think we called them girls in my class. We would divide it up, uh, so actually there was only one woman in each section. Uh, there were 150 classmates, and two of us were 
women. And here's my story. In uh, criminal law, you, um, it, law school was still very much in the mid-60s, wedded to the Socratic method, and law students uh, shivered in their boots about being called upon and whether or not you would be uh, well-prepared and whether or not you'd be up for the task of dissecting X or Y case. And so the gift to the quote-unquote woman in the class was that you would only be called on once in the semester in criminal law, and that one time would be for the rape case. And as humiliating as it was, you only had to respond to the question, what constitutes rape, by saying penetration no matter how deep, and then the gift to you was that you would never have to be called upon again, except if you voluntarily raised your hand. Can you imagine a more outrageous, humiliating situation? And that was accepted tradition in the mid-60s, mid to very mid-60s. I graduated from law school. You couldn't be more mid in mm-hmm. May or June of 1965. So... I'd like to think something happened in law schools with the significant increase of women and women faculty member. We also only had two tenured women faculty members. Um, and um, I, and lots ha- did happen, but not enough and not fast enough. I'd venture to guess that that, kind of experience, while sadly um, all too typical uh, of experiences of women law, law students, however few, and then many more in the 60s and 70s, and maybe certainly into the 80s, that by today that, that just would not and could not happen. Ugh. Galling. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even have words for that. I know. I know. And it it was so searing that I never forgot it in all its ugliness, and I've repeated it a gazillion times. It's unbelievable. I, I will tell you, I don't, I don't, I still don't forget the way in which rape was discussed in my criminal law class. Uh-huh. By uh-huh. Yeah, you are. and right. I went to law school from '98 to 2001, right. and Jed Rubenfeld, who we talked about earlier in mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, had a, what I thought was a very mistaken, to put it mildly, view that only forceful sex was rape. That if so, a woman did not consent and made it clear that she did not consent to sexual activity, that that was not it was not rape if the man went forward anyway. And I remember in class forcefully making bringing an example of a woman who freezes because she's scared um, after saying no. And he thought that that was wow. not sufficient, and I yeah. thought at the time that was abhorrent. Uh, and I still, I still remember it today. Yeah. Well, right. and, and that's the thing is that I can't believe that we're still basically saying boys will be boys, and that seems to be the tone here when we, you know, hear men saying, "Well, we shouldn't punish him for something he did in high school. We shouldn't ruin his life because of something he did thirty-six what years ago." An insult to men. It, it is. It's so it's profoundly insulting to men 
And it does make you think about how do we raise boys to be men and the leaders that we want them to be in public life as we want girls to grow up to be women and as leaders in public life, if that, uh, if that's the message that people with political power send, send to, to boys and to men, it's, it's atrocious. I don't know what other word to use that, you know, attempted rape isn't, oh, well, boys will be boys. Well, and that what we're saying, and I agree, because we're saying to boys now that it's okay if you're doing that, because it's not going to matter in your right. career. It's, it, it really has no bearing on who you are, and I disagree wholeheartedly. The message that I worry about is what we're sending to young women. Uh, so if yeah. if your daughter is with a young man and men are getting that kind of message, what message are you sending to her that... It doesn't matter if she's the victim of a violent crime. I, I, don't, I don't know. To me, it's not just an insult to men. That's an insult to our justice system and to our way of operating and as a nation. And to the rule of law. Yeah, I think so. But I see. But I think also I, I I agree with you about that message. I also think because of the courage of Dr. Blasey Ford, who has nothing to gain by coming forward, nothing except to be a good civic citizen who wanted to right a wrong, that message to girls, I think, is really important as well. And to the people, including the Me Too movement and the public officials who are supporting her. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think they're, we're, we're sadly sending dual and conflicting messages, and I'm hoping the supporters of Dr. Blessy Ford's courage went out as, as a cultural message. What, what do you think we should expect uh, from these hearings in the aftermath? Um, I'm very worried about the hearings. I understand that the 11 white men Republicans are worried about the way they will appear and the kinds of questions they will ask, and they ought to worry because every time one of them opens up their mouths, either on the Senate or some public candidate running for something somewhere, every time they open up their mouths, they clearly indicate their misogynist views, not unlike, uh, Renata, your recitation of your criminal law class. Um, So they ought to be worried. They they don't get it, and they've gotten it wrong. Um, And I think they're scared, which is why they want to hire some woman lawyer to hide behind. And I have to say, I've been going over in my mind what something I could write that says, I love women lawyers. I am a women lawyer. My two daughters are women lawyers. Some of my best friends are women lawyers. And who the hell is going to be that woman lawyer who stands up there to front for those 11 white guys? Who is that person? Cowardice. They're just being, they're, um, they're absolute cowards. 
Um, and they're right. They're cowards, and they know that they know enough to know uh, that they look and sound horrible, and they don't have a clue about how to fix it, except to hide behind somebody who's going to be their mom, for God's sakes. Um, or, or somebody who potentially would do and, a hit job uh, on on Professor Blasey Ford. Right. On the other on the other hand, um, you've got a very diverse Democratic panel with four extraordinary women um, and uh, one of them an African-American former prosecutor, uh, another an Asian-American, I remember, Lieutenant Governor, maybe Attorney General, forgetting, um, who are quite capable of asking their own questions. Uh, Senator Klobuchar was Attorney General, as well as uh, Senator Harris um, and uh, Senator uh, Hirono. So I think the the visual and the audio that American viewers, and I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say people are going to be glued to their televisions um, Thursday morning at 10 or 1030, uh, is... It, it won't be missed. The real stark difference will not be missed. And I think the cowardice versus the strength, I think one important difference between the 91 Anita Hill hearing and this hearing uh, is, first of all, it's not a court of law. It's a hearing where Judge Kavanaugh is auditioning to be on the highest court of this land in a lifetime position. This is not an interrogation or should not be an interrogation of Dr. Blasey Ford. I think unlike uh, 91, the Democratic panel do not think that they're there to be some neutral fact finders while the Republicans in 91 thought they were both prosecuting Anita Hill and defending uh, Clarence Thomas. I don't think that will happen here. I believe that the Democrats on that panel are there uh, to be very strong defenders of the case and the allegations that Dr. Blasey Ford will come forward with. So to that extent, I think it will be different. It'll still be unfair. It's going to be unfair because they're refusing to hear from corroborating witnesses or, for God's sakes, to allow the FBI to do an independent fact-finding investigation. So how fair can it be? It's still going to be a, a – they've created a situation that is unfair. The Republicans have, excuse me. And – and we're now all living it out. Wow. Well, I, yeah. I, I cannot imagine what this week is going to be like. I, I thank you so much for joining us, Judy. You were um, amazing in terms of the perspective so, you were able to thank offer. Thank you. It I, was wonderful talking to both of you. Uh, and I 
so applaud what you're doing, and I can't wait for the podcast. Well, I have to say, I, I started out grateful for the work that you've done previously, but I, I've uh, over the course of our conversation, I've become a huge fan of yours. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you, both of you. I appreciate everything you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you, and I'm going to be listening. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Have a good My one. My best to you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 